don't know if you said old man is speaking this morning, but I've got a father's joke that you could use, and you could tell everyone, I'm so glad to see you, because I haven't seen you since last year. So uh, that's Natalie's fault. So Natalie, we said we would do the joke. You just didn't know we were going to give all the credit to you, because my jokes are so much better than that. (laughs) Anyway, a show of hand, who actually saw the clock hit midnight last night? Okay. All right. So that gives me an idea. If I see you falling asleep, it's, I guess you got a little bit of a reason if other people are falling asleep. It's because I've bored you. And so uh, I'll, I'll try to uh, pick things up for you. Uh, I was given a challenge this morning for the message. Um, Al texted me probably about a week and a half ago, uh, and said, how is this for a title for your message? Well, I hadn't even chosen the passage I was speaking on, uh, but he gave me this title, uh, New Year Right Foot. And I replied, I said, well, that breaks every rule of preaching that I learned at seminary, because at seminary, we were taught that you never try to mold your text around a story, an illustration, a joke. And I would assume that would mean you don't try to mold your text around a pre-made title. Uh, I said, but I'll take the challenge. And so for about a week and a half, I tried to think of what I could speak on with this title, New Year, Right Foot. And as I thought about what right foot actually even meant, the phrase came to mind, New Year, Right Foot Forward. I thought I'd heard that expression, right foot forward, somewhere. And so I googled it, and I realized that it's actually a phrase that's often used in sporting. And so if you are a snowboarder, there is a phrase or a term, right foot forward, uh, when you're positioning yourself to throw a free throw in basketball. A phrase could be used, right foot forward. doesn't necessarily mean it's your right foot. It could be your left foot, but you're putting your right foot forward. Um, and then there is uh, basketball, snowboarding, and there was one other one. Now I can't remember what, what it was. Oh, when you are uh, starting a race and you're positioning yourself in the blocks, you want to put your right foot forward. But it really wasn't very helpful as far as a New Year's challenge. And so then the phrase hit me, New Year, put your right foot forward. And I thought that phrase seems a little more um, common. And I googled it and discovered, Jonathan, that in the UK, putting your right foot forward means to try really, really hard to do something that's difficult. I thought, there's a challenge for New Year's. I could work with that. Because we've come out of 2022, and I have pretty good feeling that most of us are happy that 2022 is over, kind of like we were when 2021 ended, with all of its trials and difficulties and challenges and obstacles. And as we look forward to 2023, we hope that there's going to be improvements in those areas where we we struggled and where there was challenges. And many of us, here we are, January 1st, maybe it was last night, have made some putting your right foot forward decisions to see 
and, and to make improvements in those areas in our life where we found that we struggled uh, and were challenged. And another word for that or another term for that is New Year's resolutions. And so we have made resolves that we are going to work really hard at trying to accomplish something that proved to be really difficult in 2022 as we move forward into 2023. Uh, And we could list all the common New Year's resolutions that have been made. Uh, I think the list is quite lengthy, but the top ones are probably the same every year. If you hang around uh, Auburn at all, you know that a resolution for the upcoming year, Brian, is that we read the Bible in a year. Uh, Perhaps your resolution is to lose weight, to go to the gym more regularly, to eat more healthy, to read more, to spend more time with your family. Uh, And the list could go on and on and on. Last year, I spoke on New Year's resolutions, and I shared a very sad fact with you. And I'll just repeat it really quickly. And that is that studies have shown that within a week, 25% of all New Year's resolutions fail. That within 60 days, 80% of all new gym memberships fizzle. And within six months, 80% of all New Year's resolutions made have failed and have been forgotten about. I made a resolution for myself this year, and that was that I was going to get back into the gym. I was doing really well. Uh, The first COVID interruption, uh, I had to stop going to the gym, but once it was opened up, I got back into the gym again, but then we had that second pause, and whenever that ended, uh, very few times did I get into the gym, but I decided, no, I've got to get back into the gym in 2023. And in fact, I decided this past week before, in between Christmas and New Year's, that I was going to get into the gym. Uh, And so I went in, uh, whatever day it was, and I walked in, and because of some shoulder issues I'm having, I realized all I can really do now is cardio. Uh, And so I went to where the equipment was that I'm familiar with to do cardio, uh, and uh, I did the bicycle. Because that's always a safe one to do because typically it's just the old people that are on the bicycle. And I felt that I couldn't really fail miserably. Uh, Most of them are chatting with somebody else and their legs are barely moving. Uh, And so I felt like a champ bicycling uh, beside them on the stationary bike. And then I moved off that and went on to the treadmill. Same thing. Most of the people on the treadmill are my age or older. They're just walking. There's the odd crazy person who's sprinting. I just make sure I choose a treadmill far away from them. Then I got off the treadmill and I looked at the most scariest machine in the gym, the dreaded Stairmaster. And I couldn't bring myself to go on it because all I could think of is every time I go on the Stairmaster, and if you don't know what the Stairmaster is, it's just steps. It's like walking on a staircase that just keeps moving and you're supposed to keep up with it and you program your weight into the machine. And, and uh, I, I find literally after about a minute of it, I want to get off. Uh, I find it difficult. I find it tedious. While I'm doing it, all I can imagine is everything else in the world that I'd rather be doing than staying on the treadmaster or the, or the stairmaster. But I end up staying on it longer than I imagined I felt like I would. Um, because I don't want to be embarrassed and get off of it like two minutes in. 
uh, while meanwhile there's people that have been on it for 20 minutes and they're practically sprinting up these stairs. Uh, And I know that there's benefits from doing it, so I'll stay on it longer. But this time, I knew I couldn't get on the Stairmaster, so so I avoided it. And it hit me as I was standing, staring at the Stairmaster, thinking about my past experiences, that that's a tendency of mine in my life. That when I come across a challenge that I find really difficult and and it makes me feel like giving up, I give up. And uh, if uh, I get frustrated because I find it to be too big of an obstacle, I avoid that challenge. And I realize that's a tendency in my life in so many areas. And I could think of things in my life, uh, like golf clubs that sit in, in my garage and tools that sit in the garage unused and a guitar that I gave away and, and, and on and on it goes because I found it so difficult, I just gave up. So frustrated, I gave the stuff away. Uh, but uh, that's probably not just me that feels that way. Uh, it's probably common with a lot of us that there's this tendency that we give up when things prove to be really tough. And so I'm standing in the gym, and this is honest, I'm standing in the gym and I'm thinking, new year, right foot, putting your right foot forward. I'm thinking about this tendency of mine to give up when things get tough. And all of a sudden, a scripture came to mind. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. I couldn't remember exactly what the wording of the passage was, but I thought, you know, I think that's the passage I can preach on on January 1st. And so I went home, and I grabbed out my Bible, and I pulled it out, and I remember this passage. And can you imagine the concern I felt when I realized that the writer to the Hebrews likens the Christian life to a race? And I know it's hard to imagine when you look at me that I'm not a runner, but I'm not a runner. Uh, In grade school, I actually was on the relay team. They chose four people to race at the races, but they needed a spare. And I was the only one that ever volunteered to be the spare. But I never got to run. Not one year that we went to the the, uh, Scarborough, whatever it was, track and field event, I never got to run. So I never ran. And to, to run a marathon or to sprint in a race just is not appealing to me whatsoever. And yet in this passage, despite my protests of not liking racing, the the writer to the Hebrews, the implications are that the Christian life is like a lifelong race that isn't always easy. In fact, it can be really grueling. It involves a lot of sweat and it takes every ounce of energy that you have and it requires perseverance and endurance. And at times you're going to be running up steep hills and you're going to be uh, running through rough terrain. And yet the challenge from the writer to the Hebrews and the challenge for us as we move into 2023 is this. Run the race to win. Run the race to win. And to me, that brings up so many questions, critical questions for me. If that's the challenge for 2023, to liken the Christian journey of faith to a race, and the challenge is to run the race to win, Why do I, why do you think it's going to be any different than any other tough challenge that we face in life? Why do I think that I'm going to actually be able to take on that challenge and not quit 
when the going gets tough because that's my tendency in life. I quit when things get tough. How do you keep persevering when obstacles keep getting thrown in front of you? Created by yourself, created by the world, created by the enemy. Is there a a proven successful strategy for running the race like a winner? And as I read this three-verse text from Hebrews, the writer tells us that there is a proven strategy strategy for success. And if you got your Bible or your Bible app, turn to Hebrews 12. And we're just going to look at three verses today. He, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And I, was, I said to Daniel before the service started, as I, I was trying to find a passage for him to read as the scripture reading, and I didn't want to have him have to read all of Hebrews 11 all these stories about the heroes of our faith. Um, and, and Daniel reminded us, well, we've referred to that quite a bit over the last little while. And in our Misfit series, I believe the very first sermon I did um, point us to some of the text of Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we'll, we'll refer to it in a bit, but uh, I had him read Colossians um, 1 because it pertains to near the end of the message this morning as well. But let's just read the first three verses that kind of end what the writer's been talking about in Hebrews 11. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so we've got this invitation in chapter 12. Let us run the race. Let us, who is us? Well, it can be a wide meaning, the word us. Definitely it means those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. It's an invitation for us to do what we're supposed to do, run the race. It's an invitation to those who are considering the claims of Jesus but are sitting on a fence. It's an invitation to run the race, join the race. I think it's also an invitation to those who haven't even really heard about Jesus yet. But when they do hear about Jesus, that they too can join this race. And so it's an invitation for us to run the race like a winner. And the fact that I say that and that there is a strategy for success, I need to define what the race is a bit more. What does success look like? If, if the Christian life is like a race and we're to run it to win, what is that success? What does winning look like? And I'll throw out a few words Uh, Each one could be a sermon in itself. But a successful life lived for God is a life that is victorious. It's a life that's fruitful. It's a life that brings honor and praise, points the world to Jesus. And it's a life that pleases God. 
So that's what I mean, because I'll say it numerous times in the message about winning the, running the race to win and the strategy for success. It's about fruitfulness. It's about victory. It's about glory. It's about pleasing God. So what do we need to know about the race? The show on TV, The Amazing Race? Well, this is the real amazing race. We're invited to run it. A few things about the race that it isn't. It isn't a sprint. It isn't interval training. Although I think some of us would like to think that it is. And it isn't invitation to be a spectator. The invitation for us is to enter the race. It's not a sprint. It's not interval training, meaning you have small spurts of energy and then you kind of coast for a while. That might sound familiar to some of us. But what is it then? I kind of suggested at the beginning that it's a marathon. That the Christian life, the race, the, uh, the race of faith is a lifelong, sometimes grueling race. It will involve sacrifice. It will involve self-denial. It involves a, a very specific mindset. Like I don't think a marathon runner ever has the mindset that they're going to begin a 26-mile race, but they're going to quit after the first mile. They enter that race with the mindset that they're going to finish well. I think that's why Jesus asked those who were considering following him to consider the cost. Are we willing to put out the energy and the effort and the sacrifice and the self-denial, the sweat, the trials that are part of running this race? And so this race is, it's a marathon. The other thing that the writer tells us that the course is set for us. Again, going back to this illustration of a marathon runner. Could you imagine if they were finding themselves in the middle of the race and all of a sudden they decide, you know what, I don't like this course. It's too many hills. The terrain is too rough. There's too many puddles that we're having to run through. And so the marathon racer decided to create their own course midstream. Well, obviously, that runner would be disqualified. And the same is true in this race that we are invited to run. It says the course is set for us. And although we may like to think differently, and we may like to think that we can set our own course... And we can make changes midstream. The reality is, if we are going to experience victory and fruitfulness and, and bring glory to Jesus and, and, and please the Father, our will needs to be submitted to his will because he sets the course for us. And then the other thing that we learn about this race is that it's not always easy. In fact, the writer wants us to know that this race at times can be very difficult, and tough. Interesting the word that the writer uses. He invites us to a race. 
And the word race in Greek is agon, agon, I guess how it is uh, uh, said. And it literally means strife and toil. It's the same word that we get the English word agony from. So he's not hiding anything to the original readers. He's inviting them to run a race of agony. Imagine putting that on the front lawn of the church. Want to experience agony in your life? Follow Jesus. Right? Not funny. And the first century believers didn't find it funny either. Because it was agony following Jesus from a human standpoint. They were ostracized. They were ridiculed. They were minimized. They were neglected. I think the same is true for us 2,000 years later. We experience the same things, making it be known that we are a follower of Jesus and that we are striving to, to live a life, to run a race that's victorious and fruitful and pleases the Father and, and points people to Jesus. And while we're running the race, the reality is not everyone's standing on the sideline cheering and and encouraging us on. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to be jeering us and ridiculing us and making fun of us. There are going to be those who are going to jump out onto the racetrack and try to push us and hurt us. And they don't even really know why they're doing it. That's the sad thing. But that's the truth. But the encouragement, the challenge... To those of us who are following Jesus is to run the race to win and to run it with endurance. And so how do we do it? How how do we put a right foot forward? Right? I, I, I meant to address this a few minutes ago. Because hopefully some of you are going, I don't know if that perfectly fits with a message from the Bible. Trying really hard to do something that's difficult. Because if you try really hard in your Christian life to be victorious and fruitful and point people to Jesus and please God and do it all under your own power, you will fail and you will fail miserably. And yet, I believe the writer to the Hebrew says there is a strategy. There's a strategy that you can follow and be successful. And the good thing is, is that it's beyond, it's outside of ourself. And so we'll get to that uh, in a moment. So what's the first part of this three-step strategy? And the first thing that the writer tells us is that we need to look back at those who have gone before for encouragement, and for motivation. Back when I was in high school, grade nine, uh, our, we had three rugby teams. There was a bantam, junior, and senior, and I would have been on the bantam team. And our school got invited to the Ontario seven-a-side rugby tournament. Now, I don't know if you know rugby, but typically rugby's got 15 players, but there's another form of the game where you just play with seven players. And I didn't know really anything about seven-a-side rugby, Uh, What I understand now is that you want your fastest players because there's only seven people on the field. There's a lot of wide open space. 
we were on the bus. Uh, actually, this happened before we were on the bus. My coach's focus was on the juniors and the seniors. The Bantam team was just kind of a bonus that we got invited, but there was only so much space on the bus. And so the coach said to me the week before, Brent, pick a team for the seven-a-side tournament. I was the biggest guy in the team. And so naturally what I did is I chose the six other biggest guys on the team, and we entered this tournament. And so we were in this tournament. Every other team were picked. Were, were, were boys in grade nine that would have been maybe 160 pounds heaviest. I was probably about 240 pounds in grade nine, and most of the other guys that I had chosen on the team were teetering on the 200 pound. This is in grade nine. I, what have we done? But we won. We won the first game, and we won the second game, and our junior team and our senior team, they both got knocked out of the tournament, and we kept winning. I was dying. I'd never run so much in my life chasing these little guys running with the balls. But we were doing well. But what, what kept us going was the cheering on the sideline. My brother was on the, uh, the uh, I guess he would have been on the senior team when I was in Bantams. Him and his friends, who had usually didn't give us the time of day, were standing on the cheer line calling out our names and cheering us to keep on going, keep running, keep running. We ended up winning the Ontario Championship in that tournament. And I give a lot of the credit to our players on the other teams, our junior and senior players, who stood on the sidelines and encouraged us and motivated us to keep on going. And that's the intent of the imagery in verse 1 of chapter 12. What it's saying is that as we are running the race, especially when we come across obstacles and trials and difficulties, those Old Testament heroes of the faith and others who have experienced trials, who have experienced the obstacles, who know what it's like to to live the Christian life and to be at a point where you just want to give up. They know what it's like, and yet they're cheering us on, and they're encouraging us to keep on going. When we're gasping for air, when, when we, we come to a hill that we don't want to climb anymore, and they're, they're yelling out from their stories, from the examples of their faith, they're yelling out to us, keep going, don't quit, you can do it, we did it, we know what it's like. We know the reward, it's worth it. Just Keep on going. You can do it. And you know what? In the end, you win. Hebrews 11, which I, I refer to, it, it's, it's a list. It's a list, and it, it gives us all of these stories of Old Testament heroes, some by name, others that we don't even know who they were. But we get these stories, these examples of their faith. And as we come to to verse 1 of chapter 12, the writer tells us what we're supposed to do with these stories. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great great cloud of witnesses, and and then he gives us these instructions. And, And what the writer wants us to know is that what we're supposed to do with these stories is we're supposed to, to, to learn them and to understand them 
and let them inspire our faith and motivate us to endure. That these stories tell us that there has been believers in every generation before us that have experienced trials and difficulties, yet have persevered and lived by faith. That that God has completed the work that he began in them. He's faithful. And that the life of faith wins. And what I think is so neat about the list in Hebrews 11, and probably why I referred to it when we first began the Misfits of the Bible series, is that most of these characters, these heroes, are misfits. And their stories are here for us to learn so that we can be inspired and so we can be encouraged and motivated to run the race to win. So the first Part of the strategy is look back at those who have gone before us for motivation and for encouragement. Then we come to the second part of the strategy. And I'd probably just shorten it by saying get rid of excess weight, which may sound a little bit odd for a spiritual strategy. Get rid of excess weight. Now I want us to, to think back to this marathon race illustration. I'm sure most of us have seen the beginning of the Boston Marathon. You got all of those runners. I want you to picture three of the runners that are standing at the very forefront of the beginning of that race. The first one is the one that you would expect. It's that long-distance runner from Kenya who's got his shorts and his light T-shirt on, his his proper running shoes. You know he's going to win because he's won before. But standing beside them is someone wearing a snowmobile suit with big snowmobile boots, a snowmobile helmet, and on his back, because he knows he's going to get hot as he's running, and he's probably going to get hungry, he's got a knapsack filled with pop and chocolate bars. And then beside him is a bride who's just run from her wedding, hopefully completed the wedding, and figured that she's going to now run 26 miles. And she's standing in her dress uh, and her long gown and the train that's following behind her. And the race is about to begin. Who's best suited to run the race? That's kind of obvious, right? The Kenyan. Wearing the proper attire. What could possibly happen to the one wearing the snowmobile suit. Well, if he or she could run at all, it's going to be very slow. They're going to get very tired. They're probably going to get overheated. Probably not going to do them well to be eating chocolate bars and drinking pop as they're running. And the bride, well, how long is it going to take before the dress and the train get tangled in her legs and she falls onto her face? If you want to run the Boston Marathon well, you get rid of all of those things that hinder and entangle and you wear what the Kenyan man has on. Obvious, right? And yet when it comes to running this race that, that, that illustrates our Christian walk, for some reason it isn't as obvious to us. When we allow ourselves to... to be entangled and to be hindered by excess baggage, extra weight that we don't need to be carrying in the race. And the the writer to the Hebrews has two things in mind. 
He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and let's throw off everything, sorry, let us throw off everything that hinders and let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And so the first thing that the writer says, is if you want to run successfully, you need to throw off anything that hinders, impedes your ability to run well. I think what the writer is talking about are things that in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong, but they're wrong in the fact that they hinder or impede or distract us from our running. They, they, they sap us, they suck the energy and the time from our schedule and from our, our body. And, and we're not left with the energy and time we need to run the race well. And so the obvious question is, well, what are those things that hinder you? That in and of themselves aren't wrong, but they're wrong because they're hindering you. They're impeding you. And I could list a bunch of different things. The reality is most of you know the answer to that question. You know those things that hinder you, that, that are sucking your time, that are, have become your number one priority. Like picture yourself at the beginning of the Boston Marathon. And... I'm assuming it's not a snowmobile suit or a wedding dress. But what is it that you have clenched in your hands? What is it that you're carrying on your back? What is the scenery behind you? Again, relationships, hobbies, pursuits, favorite places to be aren't in and of themselves wrong, but they're wrong when they keep us from running the race successfully. We need to throw off anything that hinders us from running the race to win. And then the other thing that the writer has in mind is the, the sin that entangles. And just like that bride is trying to run with a dress that's going to trip her up, the writer says, sin trips us up. And again, we know that. I could ask you to take five minutes and think about those sins that trip you up. What are those sins in your life that you know keep you from pleasing God, pointing the world to Jesus, being victorious, being fruitful? You know what those sins are. You know what those favorite sins are. Those sins that you go back to time and time again. And the author to the Hebrews says, throw them away. Strip yourself of them. You know how serious running was in the first century? Someone who wanted to win the race, they were so serious that often they would run naked. Because they didn't want any excess weight to hinder or to entangle. I'm not suggesting that that is how you go about getting rid of the sin in your life. But I am suggesting that's how serious we need to take the sin in our life. And so if we want to run the race successfully, we have to get rid of the baggage that's hindering us and the sin that's entangling us. And so we've heard this invitation this invitation to run the race. We, we can hear the cheers of those who've gone before. Maybe we feel motivated to get rid of all the excess weight. 
But as I said earlier, that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. That doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult. Why bother? Is there a greater motivation? Is there a greater example for us to follow? And the writer to the Hebrews says, yes, there is. Because if you look closely in the distance at the finish line, there stands Jesus, urging us and encouraging us to come and receive the prize for finishing the race well. Hebrews 11 is a list. It's quite common in Jewish writing. Lists. And often what the most important thing is in their list is what's at the end of the list. And so in this list in Hebrews 11, we've got all of these heroes of the faith. But as we move into chapter 12, the list ends with the hero of heroes, Jesus. In Hebrews 11, we've got all of these great examples of men and women of faith. And then we come to Hebrews 12 and it, the list ends with Jesus, the author or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Over the years, as I have tried to run the race successfully, effectively, there's been things that people have said to me that have stuck with me that have been very important to me. Uh, someone once says, you, you won't hear the voice of God if you can't recognize his voice. It's always stuck with me. Someone has told me that if you, uh, that it's God's responsibility to widen your ministry. Your responsibility is to deepen your ministry. Someone has once told me that no matter what I do in my secular career, in my ministry, in my family life, always remember to cling to the cross. And then something that someone has said to me, and it's right here in the passage, fix your focus on Jesus. If you've chosen to follow Jesus and you've accepted the invitation to run the race, fix your gaze on Jesus and don't look away from Jesus. And that's what the writer to the Hebrew says here. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is to be what we focus our gaze upon. It's really interesting, the word fix or fixing your gaze upon Jesus. Fixing presupposes something. It presupposes that you have taken your gaze off something else. Whatever it was that has attracted you or distracted you, and you've fixed it on Jesus. That, that needs to become a soul habit of ours. That we turn away from distractions and other attractions and fix our gaze on Jesus. And why Jesus? Why Jesus? Right? Like I said, we can think that we can try really hard to do something that's really difficult, but when it comes to living the spiritual life, you will fail miserably if you try to do it on your own. Why Jesus? Because he's the answer to that problem. Why Jesus? 
The writer to the Hebrews says, why Jesus? is Because he's the author or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And what does that even mean? It means because of the death and resurrection. Jesus was able to institute, to establish faith. That because of the death of Jesus, our salvation is made possible. That Jesus gives us the perfect example of what it looks like to perfectly trust God. That when we find ourselves in situations where we want to give up, Jesus will give us the faith to carry on. Why Jesus? Because he is the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. Why Jesus? Because he gives us the example of what it looks like to endure, to persevere despite the costs for the prize that awaits us at the finish line. If you look at uh, verse 2, it says something that's kind of interesting. Because two words that don't seem to go together are put in the same sentence. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Joy and cross. If I said for you to to yell out the words that come to mind when I say the word cross, my guess is the word joy is not going to be on the list. Where's the joy in the cross that speaks of humiliation and shame and torture and pain and death? Where's the joy in that? And yet the writer puts these two words together. I don't think Jesus enjoyed the cross. The Bible says he endured the pain. He, he disregarded or scorned the shame. So where was the joy? The joy was in knowing that he had perfectly fulfilled his father's will. That he had secured our salvation. That, that he had dealt with death and sin and hell. That he would reign at his father's right hand. That he had purchased our redemption. That was the joy. And the writer says, when you find yourself running the race and you come up, up against problems or trials or difficulties and you feel like giving up, you question whether it's worth it. The writer to the Hebrew says, consider, consider Jesus. Consider his example. Consider who he is. That's what's worth, why it's worth fixing and focusing our gaze upon him. Consider his example. Because he shows that it's worth obedience. It's worth running the race despite the cost because of the prize at the finish line. And why Jesus? Because he's our hope. Jesus has secured our hope. He's secured our victory. Could you imagine entering a race or a sporting event knowing that you're guaranteed to win? I never have experienced that. I played on some really good teams, had a good idea that we probably were going to win, but still had to work really hard and didn't always experience 
victory. The Christian life isn't easy. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be challenges. There are going to be times that we call out to God that we don't think we can handle it. But he's faithful. But we're guaranteed that we win. What a hope we have. Daniel, let's uh, sing a couple of songs.